Yes, really. And you probably didn't know, Marjorie, that Suzanne was not just any Miss Georgia. She was the Miss Georgia. She didn't twirl just a baton. That baton was on fire. Look, that's... And when she threw that baton into the air, it flew higher, further, faster than any baton has ever flown before, hitting a transformer and showering the darkened arena with sparks. And when it finally did come down, Marjorie, my sister caught that baton and 12,000 people jumped to their feet for 16 and one half minutes of uninterrupted thunderous ovation as flames illuminated her tear-stained face and that Marjorie just so you will know and your children will someday know is the night the lights went out in Georgia <laughs> I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And Amy, you have won the right over all of the other competitors to tell everybody what is the trope we're talking about today. Thank you. I've waited for this my whole life. Give me that friggin' tiara. We're talking about beauty pageants. Beauty pageants, beauty contests. You know, growing up, I feel like I was mostly familiar with the concept of beauty pageants from TV episodes and movies and stuff like this. This is something that I think for our whole lives has been kind of a controversial concept and has only sort of gotten more so over the years. So I want to ask you first and foremost, I'm all ears, I'm on the edge of my seat here. What is your experience with and opinion about beauty pageants writ large? <laughs> well, I was not really uh, similar to you. My experience with them was only having to do with what I saw on television, it was not something that was like part of my growing up. And then when I moved away after college, when I moved to a more, it, it was further north than where I grew up, but it was a more southern kind of town. Then I was indoctrinated into the world of former beauty queens and beauty pageants. I worked in television. So a lot of the people I worked with had grown up competing in them a bunch of and I also did theater as a hobby. So a lot of the women that I was doing theater with were former beauty queens and were now coaches. A lot of our choreographers in that area were coaches like beauty pageant coaches. It was a huge thing. People in Florida who were in the pageant circuit would train in Florida and then move to other states because the training in Florida and the pageant circuit was like top notch. And then they would go win in Ohio and Indiana, Carpet even though they baggers. weren't from there. Yeah. Wow. This is like Hillary Clinton's Senate race yeah. all over again. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is wild. I do remember, I think, a girl I went to high school with 
Antoinette something was rumored to be like the former Miss Teen Buffalo or something right. like she, you <laughs> she know, had competed I, in some pageant, an urban yeah. legend. But yeah, look, I don't want to be Mr. Uh, virtue signaling feminist guy here, but I feel like from the earliest ages of being aware of this, even as a kid, when you would see these things, like we said, in movies and TV and stuff, these beauty pageants and stuff, it always struck me as a bizarre phenomenon. I always kind of had this notion of like, this seems super outdated and why would people want to do this? And just like all of the, you know, arguments that are going to be expressed over the course of these shows, it always seemed like kind of a backwards sexist thing to me to the point where now I almost go like, well, now I have to question that assumption. Is that the sort of thing where, you know, was I being too sort of close-minded in my thinking? But uh, yeah, I guess that's what... I want to ask you before we get to the specific shows, that whole notion that we're going to see again and again expressed here. Ah, you're, you know, dressing up women in bathing contests and raiding them. And it's all (laughs) excuse for guys to, you know, just drool over the hot babes and they pretend like there's a high minded aspect to it, but there's not. How do you feel about that notion? Look, I think one of the things that is, I think, look, both things are true, right? Like there definitely is that like wave of feminism that was from the kind of started in the 70s when our moms were young that says that you know women don't have to do this you don't have to take part in that and and being in a beauty pageant isn't feminist and then there's the whole side of the argument that's like I can do whatever I want and if this is a way I can get a scholarship then I'm going to go get a scholarship and one of there's you know I think within that community there's lots of debate about the bathing suit competition, the part of it, and elevating the talent and trying to, you know, instead of having it be bathing suits, we're going to have them do speeches, you know, those kind of like trying to shift that the gaze of the about fact that it, it being a beauty pageant. And the fact that it is so gendered, and of right. course that's going to play out too, but the fact that, you know, well, if this isn't about sexuality, why is it Miss America in the first place? You yeah. know, there's all these weird dimensions to it. So yeah, I think we can continue to play out that debate as we start going through these episodes, because what's so interesting about this trope, you know, we often talk about, is this a trope from real life, a la getting your driver's license, or is this a crazy one? like getting bopped on the head and having your personality change. Here's one where I expect if we went further back in time, you know, to maybe like the Andy Griffith episodes, say, about the beauty pageants, it would be a little bit more like a high school graduation or something like that, where it's a thing that not everybody does, but certain people do, and you can explore how they react to that. Whereas now it's a little bit like if an episode about a high school graduation went, should there even be a high school graduation? You know, is well, what's the deal with this whole thing anyway? Like a lot of these episodes, all of them, I would argue, are challenging the notion of yes, a beauty pageant. Yes, they are. There, there's at least one person in every one of these episodes who's like, I don't know if I believe in beauty pageants. I don't know. And there is that question around them. And, and I think, you know, you're asking me, like, how do you feel about it? And I am, I'm sure you can tell from my answers, I'm of two minds. Like, I personally have never participated in them. And also, I don't, like, a good friend of mine did, and she's one of the most feminist women and I know. So, you know, I I think it can be both. It's just a matter, just like with anything in life, I think it's a matter of the way you're engaging with it. 
And there's always bad actors that are going to be able to take a thing and make it problematic. Yeah. All right. So let's get into our shows. What is our lineup? Our lineup is Designing Women. Oh, yes. That Designing Women. Season one, episode two, The Beauty Contest. A Different World. Season one, episode 17, Mr. Hillman. Malcolm in the Middle. Season six, episode 22, Mrs. Tri-County and Parks and Recreation. Season two, episode three, Beauty Pageant. Yeah, so this is mostly new shows to the podcast, including Designing Women. You and I watched Designing Women as part of our personal TGIF block a few years ago. I have to say, it's one of the rare times that we did not complete the series. And it was not necessarily because it was bad or we didn't like it, but this was one that uh, there's a lot of them. They go on for a while. It's definitely a sort of mixed bag in in every way. You know, there's a lot to like. You've got some powerhouse actors in the show. It's really fun to watch. And then it has ebbs and flows. Like this is the second episode of the series. And it is iconic. The speech, the that is the night that the lights went out in Georgia, is from episode two. Yeah. I mean, this is Dixie Carter's career, you know, monologue that drag queens still do to this day and win RuPaul's drag race, by the way, by doing this spoken word monologue. It is, I mean, it's iconic. And it was the first time that she, that's what um, Dixie Carter kind of became known for in this Julia Sugarbaker character were these monologues where she would just excoriate yeah. whoever she was trying Dressing to put down. down. somebody. She's amazing. And this was the first one of them. So it was, it was fabulous. And the other thing about this episode having to do with the beauty contest, you want to talk about Miss Florida, Delta Burke herself, one of, you know, who plays Suzanne Sugarbaker in this series was Miss Florida in 1974. So this whole, like her, as a former beauty queen storyline is true to life. Yeah, so it's not surprising that we have that sitcom thing of like, yeah, bringing in the actors and sort of working in their real life characteristics and stuff. And like you said, because this is so early in the series, we're very much throwing down the gauntlet in terms of who these characters are and what the whole vibe of the show is going to be. And the vibe is very homey overall. This takes place mostly in this big, nice living room set that's also their workplace, right? Right. The concept is the two of them, the two characters you just mentioned, are sisters, and one or both of them are interior designers that sort of run this. Yeah, Julia and, uh, and Suzanne are supposed to be partners in this interior decorating business. Julie is the interior decorator and Suzanne is the one who has all the connections with the fancy clients because of her many marriages and her life in sort of like the fancy pageant world of Atlanta and beyond. So she is the one who gets them clients just through her social connections. And Julia is the one who does the work and she has hired an office assistant. And that is played by Jean Smart. And she's amazing in this. And then you have Annie Potts, who is another uh, interior decorator who works with them. Right. So the four of them are always kind of hanging out in this room. Annie Potts in this show, I have to say, she is my grown-up celebrity TV crush. I'm too old to be scamming on Nicole Eggert anymore. (laughs) Annie Potts in this show looks great. I think the way her hair shows up 
on this film, especially considering that this is in the 80s and the time when we're talking about everybody looks horrible and it's the absolute worst time for hair in the history of the world. <laughs> and Annie Potts's like auburn locks managed to like have this phenomenon where they start out as like red on the outside and as it goes deeper it gets darker it just shows up so well in on camera in this show and like it's so much fun to watch with you because you're always like god Annie Potts hair looks so good <laughs> she really looks great and yeah I'm going to make some comparisons in the next show because I think her and Jasmine Guy despite being different ethnicities and ages are sort of the same person having a good time with the jasmine guy um southern bell in a different world but yeah annie potts very very likable in this show and yeah all of them it's a great ensemble and yeah this episode is going to be all about gene smart's character charlene having signed up annie potts's daughter against her knowledge in this local beauty contest right so and Mary Jo, played by Annie Potts, is like, hey, I don't know, you know, thank you, Charlene, for submitting her name. And and that's great that she was accepted, but I don't believe in beauty pageants. And Charlene's, what do you mean you don't believe in them? They exist. Like, you can't yes. not believe in them. She's unfamiliar with this whole way of thinking. Right. So, you know, uh, Mary Jo explains, and then Julia jumps in to kind of explain the reason that they both see beauty pageants as anti-feminist. And their main argument is, you know, how come there's no, like, Mr. whatever this is? And you never see guys out there in tiny little string bikinis while they put up measurements of their, you know, most intimate parts and then rate them on those measurements. Yeah, this is one of many little symposiums we're going to get about this subject. One of them says, if pageants are so wonderful, why don't they have them for men? And another one goes... Uh, Like, are you saying that men are smarter than us? And she goes, when it comes to stuff like this, they are, which I thought was an interesting notion that she's saying like, yeah, they've got the right idea by just refusing to take part in something like this. Right. Well, and I think it's that goes back to like who creates them. Right. And so, yeah. And that was the other thing. The then the counter argument was, well, but it's for scholarships. And Julia and Mary Jo are like, okay, but men can get scholarships without shaking their, you know, yabos in a bikini. So we don't need to do that. Um, Mary Jo's like, I'd rather just study. Yeah. Well, and this is part of what I find problematic about this beauty pageant concept is the idea that this is the form of competition that's available to you where it's like, oh, boys can play sports or do debate club or any number of things. You girls, oh, you want to compete? Sure. Come on over to the beauty pageant. And so it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I think like you're saying, if this is one of the options available to you in the modern world and you particularly like doing these sorts of twirls or whatever, then sure. I think it becomes a bummer to think of this as like, yes, this is your version of, you know, trying out for the football team or something. Right, right. So that conversation plays out and then Annie Potts, you know, Mary Jo says, no, sorry, you know, I've I've said my piece about this. I'm not going to let her go. And then it goes to that night at her house. Annie Potts is talking to her kids 
kids. And the daughter is like begging her to be allowed to do this beauty pageant, which is just not something I could possibly relate to. Just I, I just couldn't fathom the mentality of this 12-year-old 12-year-old girl going like, please let me, you know, walk down the aisle in this Miss Teen Georgia thing. But that's Well, what she wants. Want, I mean, yeah, Miss Teen Atlanta, Miss Preteen Atlanta, I think is the name of the contest or whatever. I don't know. I can't, that resonated with me because I, I know, I don't think I ever had the, an argument with my mom about being in a, uh, a beauty pageant or anything like that. But I definitely remember when I was going away to college being like, I want to be in a sorority. And my mom was very much like, why do you need to buy friends? Like you don't need to pay so that you have a place to hang out. Everybody likes you already. Like you don't need to do that. And it was, this was like, she, her like feminism very much felt that like being in a sorority was not the way to be feminist. And I was of a completely different generation going like, what's wrong with a sorority? It right, looks like a lot of fun. fun. Yeah. And so just that kind of world clash that this conversation with Mary Jo and her daughter reminded me of that. And so while this is happening, Mary Jo is like doing her nighttime uh, like moisturization routine. Yeah. So she's like, putting on she was like putting on cleanser and then she put on like her night mask that you know the um cold cream kind of a thing that you would leave on yeah. and then she pulled out another cream to put under her eyes right. like her so eyes she's cream. all covered in this crap. and then she's like blotting it in with paper so she's gonna be nice and moisturized when she goes to bed and she realizes that you know as she's going on and on telling her daughter like that's you know what's on the outside isn't important what's on the inside is what's important and then she kind of stops and is like, and we shouldn't spend so much time thinking about what's on the outside. Yeah, there's this uh, comical sort of She like, like realizes what she's been doing and the messages that she's been sending that are op- the opposite of what she says she's believing. Yeah, exactly. She sort of realizes like, oh, I kind of, you know, a big part of my world is, you know, trying to look good in different ways and stuff. And yeah, she just kind of realizes the sort of oxymoron of her lecturing the daughter about looks being superficial while she's doing all this makeup or moisturizer or whatever. So, you know, she begrudgingly allows the daughter to enter the pageant. And that sends us off on one of our big subtropes here, which is going to be the sort of training montage you know the sort of like oh you know all your friends are going to come and teach you how to walk and talk and all that stuff because if you're new to beauty pageants then you need to learn the ropes it is this whole machine right like everybody and in a couple of the episodes that we watch people said like these other girls are professional pageant girls like you if you don't know how to do this then you're not going to be able to get by and that made me laugh because it makes me think of like the toddlers and tiaras and those shows that were really popular there for a while of all the little kids in the beauty pageants and how it is this kind of like, you know, the moms take them around from show to show to show and they have these huge closets full of all these custom-made costume things that they can only wear once. And like, it is this big racket and it's just wild to think that these girls, all the people that we're kind of engaging with in these episodes, they're just trying to figure it all out in the short period of time. So of course, 
course they're going to be like fish out of water story. Well, and it's also that subtrope of the parent or friend or whatever having to go like, hey, look, I think you're the most beautiful girl in the world, but, you know, you need to understand what you're getting into and this idea that like you're sort of, you're swimming with the sharks now and these these other girls, like they just, they have these techniques and these experiences and stuff that you and don't have. And they can be mean right. as well. And you're supposed to be, like you're not supposed to be yourself when you answer certain questions. You have to say certain things and walk a certain way and act a certain way, even if that's not who you are because you're trying to project this whole image. And that, I think, is where it becomes, that's where, to me, the beauty pageant thing sort of becomes a little problematic. If if it's such this, like, rarefied air where you have to pretend to be this, 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 and that then you're not really like, then it's not a, what kind of pageant is this? It's not about real people. It's about this other thing. And so that's where I think a lot of people and me included get a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, and I think that's going to be part of the thesis of the Parks and Rec episode when we get to it is like, you know, you're trying to preserve or like get to the core of what this thing is, but does it have a core? Like, is this something that started out with some nobility and got corrupted? Or is is this just something that doesn't really have anything to it, you know, in the first place? But uh, yeah, the the pageant gets going. And this is another subtrope we're going to see repeat in some of these episodes. The idea of the one character going from disinterested or aloof or whatever, then getting into the spirit and becoming hyper competitive and sort of mercenary. And in this case, it's Annie Potts going from like, yeah, I'm above all of this to now sort of like dishing on the other contestants and saying something like, uh, she's got her nose is too long for her face. That one's gum show when she smiles. I think that one's on steroids because her lips are all puffy. She like has a mean thing to say about every single kid that's yeah. coming up to where Jean Smart's character, Charlene, is like, um, you're being pretty mean to these little girls. And she's like, oh, I know I'm Horrible. Yeah, there's this recurring thing about Miss City Light and Water. Right? right. They say her lips looked fake. I think she's using a steroid. Now, as as this starts playing out, and you know, we're dealing with Claudia, the daughter, entering the pageant, this other story starts sort of taking over, right? Because right. I guess part of the convention with all of these is you have the past beauty winners are the judges or the officials or whatever. Exactly. So you have this, you know, this this older, uh, you know, reigning or former beauty yeah, queen or whatever. Yeah, the current Miss Georgia is going to be there as the person who's like helping the girls and then giving out the crown at the end. Yeah, and like you mentioned, Delta Burke's character, Suzanne, she is fully into the whole beauty pageant thing because she is a pageant girl herself. That's right. And she has a conversation with... Uh, uh, this this former pageant winner and there's another friend of hers you know they're sort of mean girl type ladies and they're condescending to her about her baton tossing they're going yes. like what was your thing what did you do for the talent and she says I, I tossed the batons and they're doing the thing of like oh that was so brave of you right. oh that was so creative because nobody does that anymore and Suzanne is super sensitive about this I mean she right. is heartbroken she's about to turn 30 and that's another part of the episode oh, yeah. so she's like freaking out that she's 
a, a washed up beauty queen and and she doesn't like there's nothing else for her now in life because that was what she had worked toward was trying to be Miss Georgia and then she got it and now it's been you know 15 years and she's like who am I I like I lived for the last 15 years on the fact that I was Miss Georgia and now I'm nobody yeah this is a little bit like the old Al Bundy thing or whatever you know the idea that your glory days are behind you because of you know your your high school football days have come and gone and there's this added benefit of half your friends are telling you that this this accomplishment that you cherished so much is actually this sexist farce and right. like you shouldn't <laughs> Didn't mean anything in the first place yeah Yeah. but so yeah that upsets her and then there's going to be another moment later that's going to lead to like you said the whole julia speech but i guess before we get to that we have claudia's story get sort of resolved by this is this is another sort of rocky scenario right where she's not going to win the beauty pageant she's going to just sort of be true to herself and like make everybody proud yeah so she gets you know she makes it to like the final round or whatever and they're doing an interview segment and like another interview segment and she gets up there and she's like you know when you guys asked me that other question before i didn't really answer the way that i wanted to answer and that's because i was trying to be what I thought you wanted me to be and what everyone tells me you want me to be. But I think I'd just rather be me. So, yeah, I think I would answer it like this. And then she re-answers the question and says she wants to be a dancer or something instead of what she had said she wanted to be. So that's her kind of rising above or realizing that she doesn't need other people saying you're pretty in order to, like, be proud of herself. Yeah, and that, like she says, she has to be herself. She shouldn't be putting on airs to try to tell them what they want to hear. And this is yet another recurring subtrope, I think. This idea that in a beauty contest, when they ask you the questions, you need to, like deny the premise somehow. Right. You always have to get back to world peace or America is wonderful. But not just that. It's like the the characters that we're on the side of always end up doing this sort of like, I know the kind of answer you want me to say, or like, I know what what you think I'm going to say or what I'm supposed to say. But actually, you know, because the same thing happens in Malcolm in the Middle when they ask her the best parts about motherhood. And she's like, I don't think there are any. But it's like (laughs) you have to deny it and then come around to still somehow sort of proving your virtue. Right. Um, But the daughter only kind of does the first part. Like, she just kind of says, like, yeah, I'm not going to pretend to be something else. This is who I am. And then they don't show you the rest of the pageant. They show you the aftermath later. But I think you're supposed to understand, like, she did not win over the judges by doing that. She just, She just... Uh, protected her own dignity and kind of decided, yeah, you know, this this pageant stuff isn't really for me. Yeah, I'm not going to play by those rules because they I don't think they necessarily apply to me. And that's okay. You guys can have that. I'm going to go do this thing. So she doesn't win. But uh, at the end of the episode, Suzanne gives her a tiara anyways, and says, you know, it looks so good on you. And you did such a great job. And everybody should get to wear a tiara at some point kind of a thing. And so she gives her a tiara. And they're they're gonna go off happily into the night. That's all great. Yeah. And like you were saying, the the focus sort of changes to the behind the scenes stuff where these these former beauty queens 
you know, they're, they're making fun of, of Delta Burke, basically. Right, they're but in she's this... not in the room. Julia is. And yeah. so Julia's over, they're in like a backstage dressing room and Julia overhears them. Yeah. You know, they're they're doing that sort of, you know, oh, how pathetic, whatever. I'll get a load of her. And so one of them leaves the room and then the other one, the main, like the actual former winner or whatever. Current gets, Miss Georgia, yeah. Yeah, gets trapped in the room by Her Julia. Name is Marjorie, All which right. we get to hear Julia Sugarbaker say multiple times. Yeah. Marjorie. And Julia just delivers this epic speech. I couldn't write it down fast enough, but just certain <laughs> phrases she would say, grown men wept, That's you know, right. when they talked about how she was, I, I don't even remember remember what and then they say you know she didn't just twirl a baton that baton was a flame was on and fire she threw it higher and faster than any baton has ever been thrown it hit a transformer in the ceiling showering the audience with sparks that when they did their 16.5 minute standing ovation 16 and one half minutes <laughs> yeah, yes like <laughs> it is wild and like you said before it all sort of culminates in her going and that madam was the night marjorie yeah, yeah. <laughs> that what is it that georgia the night that marjorie so that you will know and one day your children will know is the night that the lights went out in georgia yeah exactly so we get sort of our first major taste of what is going to be this recurring trope on this show, arguably to diminishing returns, is yeah, Julia dressing people down, kind of going like, okay, I've let this go for far enough now, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. But yeah, this first one really is great. It's a perfect audition piece if you're trying out for like a Tennessee Williams play or something. <laughs> uh, I don't know yeah. about Tennessee Williams, but yes, it's a it's a good one. So the whole setup with Designing Women is that it was really meant to have this kind of like liberal sort of feminist, you know, arc, but also be set in the South and yeah. have this understanding that Southern women can also be intelligent and feminist and, you know, all of those things. And so it's really interesting. It, like a lot of the things that would pop up in this show remind me of Kristen Chenoweth and the way she is just as she goes through life. It reminds me of the girl who played Ainsley Hayes or the character of Ainsley, Ainsley Hayes on um, The West Wing, which is, you know, she gets brought on The West Wing and she's this like Southern pretty blonde girl and she's a Republican, but the very liberal White House hires her and she, you know, is arguing that some amendment or something, something they're trying to get passed that's meant for like equal rights for women is narrowing and it doesn't go far enough and so like her take on feminism is that I don't have to have everything a man does in order to be feminist I, I or have it be equal I want the things I want kind of a thing and and yeah it's really it's interesting and so it is a different kind of idea than I think I have a lot of the times but I always enjoy hearing from other women and of other walks of life to, to see how they think of feminism. And that's what Designing Women was trying to do in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, and it definitely does not set off my country bumpkin alarm. Like, I, I like this show partially for that 
reason that it is very much like a completely different demographic from anything that I was familiar with, but it, it very much succeeds in creating that air of sophistication and stuff. And you feel like, yes, they are very smart and they do have these little symposiums, symposii, yeah. uh, you know, where they'll sit down and talk about a topic kind of like the way the head of the class kids do, you know, and yeah, it is really good for that. But yeah, in terms of this topic, the... The beauty pageant thing, I think what you said at the beginning kind of bears out here that there isn't a clear take on it. You know, it sort of raises questions and kind of goes like, yeah, this aspects of this seem problematic or outdated or offensive, but some people really like it and maybe it's not all that bad. And the show itself sort of seems to be of two minds where you have Annie Potts's character presenting those initial objections and then sort of getting swept up in it. But, you know, all of the initial stuff that they said about rating women like meat and stuff, you know, none of that exactly gets denied. But then you also see Julia sort of coming around and sort of embracing it so passionately when she defends her sister's victory. And, you know, when she was twirling that baton that, you know, she was twirling it for all of us. And yeah. so it's like, it really does sort of go like, huh, we don't know quite what to make of this beauty contest stuff. Yeah. Well, and the other thing this one does really well is it allows, it like brings to bear the kind of hypocrisy that lives in all women. I think we're raised in this society. We understand, I mean, it's kind of like the America Ferrara speech at the end of Barbie, right? It's like, we are this and we're this and we have to be that and we have to be that. And what you see happen to Mary Jo is kind of that same thing. Like she believes very strongly that women shouldn't be objectified. And yet the minute her daughter's in competition, she's like, that girl's ugly. That girl's not pretty. That girl yeah. isn't as cute as my kid. And so it's like, it, it highlights the the ways that so many times because of the like growing up in a society that is so patriarchal, there are certain things that they're like unconscious bias that live inside our heads. And we are, you know, as women oftentimes like creating our own cages in yeah. terms of the way we attack other women and the way that we don't hold each other up in certain ways. And even that is hard because sometimes other women can like another woman can be an asshole. And so it's like, wait, can I criticize her without making it be about this? How like, and it's like, how do I do all of these very seemingly you know, disparate things at once. And it, it you can't, you can't win. And like, whatever, yay, America Ferrara for her Oscar uh, nominated role. But like that, that speech to me encapsulates exactly what I think they're trying to sort of highlight in this episode. Yeah. All right. So let's continue all of this cognitive dissonance and move on to a different world. Season one, episode 17, Mr. Hillman. Yeah, this may be the closest we ever get to talking about the Cosby show because of certain <laughs> problematic individuals. It's interesting I how... I say, this episode, these episodes have sort of lined up yeah, with those. Yeah, we've got quite the Me Too lineup here. <laughs> well, I mean, it is about beauty pageants, so yeah, let's just go that that's way. That's <laughs> true. Different World was, of course, the spinoff of The Cosby Show, where the oldest daughter, Denise, went off to college, and we got a whole new cast of characters. 
This was not one that I watched, but I remember it being on in those sort of syndicated reruns and I would catch it here and there. But I think, you know, it's funny. I talk about how I wasn't into shows that didn't have kids in them. And for me, even though now I see a bunch of fresh faced youngsters at the time, these still registered to me as adults. They I were wasn't grown. Yeah. really interested in watching, you know, a show that took place in a college dorm. And so, yeah, this was just kind of a pass for me. So I wasn't really familiar with it. Well, I definitely did watch this. I mean, our family, we were we, like sit down together as a family, Cosby show watchers, and then this show as well. So that was kind of this show was definitely part of my growing up. I don't remember this first season as much. And that's probably just because I'm like, you know, how young I was when it came on. I was like shocked and surprised to realize that the original pitch for this was about a white girl going to a historically black university. And that girl was supposed to be Meg Ryan. Hmm. And then she was like, no, thanks. I'm going to pursue a film career. So they recast the role as Marissa Tomei, who was going to be a secondary character and roommate to Lisa Bonet. And that was when the whole thing shifted and it became a, um, a spin off of the Cosby show for Denise, which I was just like, what? That's crazy. I didn't know any of that backstory. Also was really surprised to see Marissa Tomei in this episode. I yeah. did not remember that she was in this show because it was only for the one season. So that first season, you had Lisa Bonet, Marissa Tomei, and a few others. And then at the end of the season is when Lisa Bonet and uh, Lenny Kravitz got pregnant with their daughter, Zoe, who is now a famous movie star as well. And that was like the famous falling out because Cosby was like, we're not having an unwed mother anywhere near the Cosby show. And so because um, she wanted to stay on a different world and have it written in and have it. Yeah, be like wouldn't want any weird sex stuff going on in yeah. proximity of the Cosby. Show. And he his his quote was um, Lisa Bonet is, you know, welcome to get pregnant and enjoy her life. Denise Huxtable will not. And so they wrote her off of Different World at the end of this season. She drops out and then moves home and then eventually goes to Africa for a year and then comes back married with a stepdaughter to a much older man. So that was a whole falling out behind the scenes thing that happened. But we're still in the in the glory days here. We have a season one episode, Lisa Bonet, still a main character. We get Dwayne Wayne. He is going to step up for their dorm. Gilbert is the dorm. Is that right? Because Whitley's last name is Gilbert. The dorm that they live in is named after her family. She's very wealthy, and that's played by Jasmine Guy. So she, after this season, becomes the lead of the show. But anyway, in this season, you've got Whitley, who really wants to be Gilbert Hall's nominee for uh, Miss Hillman. And Denise asks Dwayne Wayne if he will put himself in for it because beauty pageants are not feminist. Yeah, all right. We need to slow down here because there's a lot going on that I was not totally grasping. What you just said that they're nominating the candidate for their particular dorm, who's right. then going to compete for the larger title of Miss Hillman, which is, like you said, the college they go to. I didn't get that. And so the fact that this whole episode is playing out as an election, essentially, where these different characters are campaigning for this was 
odd to me. And I had half a mind during this whole episode to kind of turn to you and go like, does this even fit with the trope? This feels more like running for class president than some kind of pageant. But now I understand we didn't even get to see the proper beauty pageant in this. We're seeing the behind the scenes machinations that creates a candidate that will then enter a pageant that happens later down the road. Sure. And I do think that there's, well, because you have the fraternity who then nominates someone as well as like their, the representative from their fraternity. So I think it seems to me that the dorms and the different clubs and fraternities and sororities can all nominate different people. All right. So that all... I I get that now. And like you said, the sort of hook of this episode is going to be nominating a man or a boy to run in the Miss Hillman thing, which I just want to shout out one of the shows we're not covering on this one. The Saved by the Bell episode about Miss Bayside has this same story. And so I just want to kind of think about that for a second while we're talking about this whole idea, you know, are beauty pageants sexist or misogynist or patriarchal or whatever. The idea that, you know, these these shows are very much around the same time, 87, 88, 89, these Saved by the Bell and Different World episodes. So it's interesting to me that they both would take that tack of like, it's kind of funny, but also kind of makes our point to have this thing where a boy enters the beauty contest. Right. They're trying to do with this what I think people now who are non-binary would say, like, can I, you know, as if I use they, them pronouns, am I welcomed in the Miss America pageant? Why not? (laughs) And also just sort of asking the question of, like, why is this so gendered? Like, what... Is this like what are we actually competing in? Is there, you know, it's almost like by by entering a guy, you're sort of forcing them to admit that this is just a contest of hotness, right? Because right. what else? If there was any substantive competition to it, if we were actually competing in something, then the guy could compete with them, you right. know? And I think the alternative argument is like the guys already have opportunities for all these other things. Like if it's scholarships, if it's access to this or, you know, whatever it is, guys already have that pipeline because bros are looking out for bros and allowing them to get these internships and to do this thing and to be able to have that access. Whereas women, you know, at least in in this time, don't necessarily have those pipelines because there haven't been women, female titans of industry that are able to kind of like pave the way for them and welcome other women along the way. So there's, you know, there's a feminist argument on both sides of why or why not to allow men involved. And it's almost like everybody loses because it's like boys, like maybe Maybe some of them want to be in beauty pageants for some reason. And yeah, there's lots of girls that would rather play sports and do other things. Uh, so yeah, just those sort of, you know, bifurcated gendered stuff tends to not help anybody. But uh, there's an interesting sort of like point of view question in this episode, I noticed, because it's really not clear, like, 
whose story is this? You know, there's a lot going on here. Whitley, we should mention, is representing another sort of subtrope in this beauty pageant thing, which is, I come from a pageant family. Yes. You know, and she's not going to even get a ton of screen time, but the episode begins and ends with her. And it's sort of like, ostensibly, this is the main conflict, is my mom's approval of me depends on me becoming Miss Hillman. Right. And I have to win this. My mom was Miss Hillman. My father's mother was Miss Hillman. And my aunt, whatever, was Miss Hillman. By the way, this dorm is named after me. Like, I need to be Miss Hillman. And so I think the, like, dorm mother later on comes in and tries to console her after she doesn't win and is like, hey, you've got three more years to to win so don't i mean you've got time if this is the thing that you feel like you need to do you have plenty of time you don't have to do it your first year here yeah so that's her story and that's why throughout the whole episode she's going to be very motivated to win and she sort of represents this conservative thinking of how dare they enter a boy in this pageant right partially because it's a mockery of the pageant itself partially because she just really wants to win Then you've got Denise is the one in favor of this because, you know, sort of like Annie Potts, she doesn't like the idea of these beauty pageants. I just she's just trying to be a disruptor, right? So like the other girls in the dorm come to her and say, hey, don't you want to be the nominee from Gilbert? Because we don't want it to be Whitley because she's so annoying and so stuck up. And Denise is like, no, but I think the pageants are stupid and we shouldn't have them. And if we do have them, shouldn't they be all about equality? So let's get, you know, let's get Dwayne Wayne and see if he'll do it. Yeah. Now, Denise herself, as the main character of this show, you know, I watched the Cosby show a handful of times when I was a kid, of course, like I'm familiar with all those characters. But I guess she wasn't on it for a lot of years, right? Because she went off and did this. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not super familiar with her. The one thing I noticed that I'm really out of my depth talking about this, but it is a little weird that for a show with this black cast about this historically black college, that the two main girls are so light-skinned. Like, I could not help but notice that and wondered if there's some sort of problematic thing going on there that again, that's for somebody else to write that term paper. Like I don't, you know, (laughs) I mean, look, there's, there's, there's tons of research out there and there's tons of literature out there about how it is easier in Hollywood being a light skinned black person to get cast in things, especially at this time. And so there's, you know, that's a hundred percent a thing they do. I think in a later season, they had, an episode that was about that like the color politics that exist within the black community um they retooled like we meant like i mentioned at the beginning they retooled this um cast at the end of season one so it became like a totally black cast there was not um like the white characters were marissa tomei was written out and so like there may have been some other like ancillary white characters but this became a predominantly black cast moving forward 
in season two. And so there was an episode much later on that dealt with that, uh, that still is controversial because it had one of the lighter skinned characters, one of the lighter skinned black characters wearing blackface. And they were trying to like talk about that issue. But even in that, the actors themselves felt uncomfortable so that it was it still is a controversial issue. It is something that kind of jumps out at you because again, having, you know, being familiar with that sort of argument, especially as pertains to women's sexuality. And you notice that the two main female cast members are like that, whereas, you know, the the males are more of like a mixed bag. I don't. Yeah. Well, I mean, but there is no denying Jasmine Guy's talent. <laughs> oh, sure. But well, so okay. So that's one thing I noticed. But then, in terms of Denise herself, gorgeous actress, and you could see like the way she styled and everything is like super appealing. You know, like just she's wearing that that sort of vaguely militaristic olive uh, blazer, yeah, and she's she got her little beanie the, thing. The beanie thing. She's so cool. That's what yeah. I remember about Denise Huxtable in both shows. Like always, the epitome of cool. Yes, but her persona is like the comparison that that jumped out at me now is selena gomez the way she gets flack for being so low-key and unenergetic oh and yeah wondering, 100 like, are you okay like you watch her in this show and i'm just like i don't know if i'm looking at a weak actor or somebody that's intentionally playing a character like no, this? No, it's but- like she's a little high the whole time. She's very chilled out. Every, like, even when she has that scene um, towards the end with with uh, Whitley, and she's like, you know, you just don't necessarily need to do everything for your mom. Yeah, or when she's at a podium addressing an entire group of people, like, super low energy yeah. to the point where you're like, get her some Zoloft or something. She needs like, some pep. She, yeah, like, it, it's a very... Very interesting characterization that I didn't know what to make of other than like not not oozing charisma uh, for for one reason or another. Well, and so I think like the main thrust of this show, because she didn't have a lot to do in this show. And so I think the main thrust of the show was really more of the story of Dwayne kind of recognizing his own uh, problematic behavior. So the minute he says, absolutely, I'm going to do it because... Denise, who I want to, I want to be my girlfriend, has asked me to do this, so I'm going to do this, and then everybody starts making fun of him. Yes. The guys are hooting and hollering and making kissy faces at him. The women are like grabbing his butt and barking at him and and, and growling. to be clear, this is not like he put on a dress and a sash and no, walked no. around college. He's this just is looks just like his normal him. self. Yeah, this yeah. is just from the knowledge that he's entered into this competition. Right, so everybody is like becoming their worst selves and catcalling him and insulting him and doing it all in the guise of like, this is how we treat a woman. Yeah. Which that's what Denise's little speech is about. And that's also when Dwayne Wayne comes and he gives his little speech. That's what his speech is about as well. And so I think that was the point of the episode. It was to highlight treatment of women in such a way that one of the characters who often acts like that could have a realization. And then all the other people could sort of be like, whoa, we we don't like it when we're talked to like that. Why do we think it's okay when we get the power to immediately do that. And I'm going to go back to Barbie because that's what happens with the Kens, right? Like the Kens are like, 
we don't like the fact that we're treated this way, then the minute they get the power, they are totally jerks about it. And so like that is what is happening in this episode. Yeah, no, I saw that too. And it makes sense. But I guess maybe it's just because my purposes for this podcast, I wanted to gel with the episodes. It it seemed to come out of left field. Like I said, we start with Jasmine Guy and she's got to learn the lesson of maybe winning beauty pageants and everything. Or and it's then, more like your mom's approval of you isn't right but she's got her thing going on and then denise is coming at it from the point of view like we've been talking about like are pageants okay what is the deal with this bizarre phenomenon and then yes exactly when it becomes about Dwayne wayne running it turns into this sort of how the other half lives thing and going like oh my gosh we're we're so horrible to women which is fine but it just struck me as weird because it seemed like the behavior that he's absorbing, people making fun of him and stuff, like, for better or worse, I think they're making fun of him because he's a guy entering a female competition, not because they think he's a woman and that's just how they treat all women. Like, you know what it means? Like, it makes sense, sort of, for this to be a little bit of a turn the tables, oh, now I need to reconsider my own behavior, and yet... The scenario is so odd and yeah, unusual. Yeah, you're picking up on the fact that this is not a good episode. Yeah, and it's <laughs> kind of like with Charles in Charge and the uh, the makeover thing. Like, the the messaging that it's trying to send it's, it's is mixed, modeled. It's muddled, and it's not well written. And I think part of it is, you know, you and I come into the show, we drop in, and we're like, oh, sure. we want to see Lisa Bonet being the center character and she's not at all like she barely has any lines and it's very you know low-key when she is speaking and it's kind of like what's going on and so this story I think is really about Dwayne Wayne and if that's the case then let's kind of amplify that even more and not muddy it up with all the other stuff yeah because he never takes it seriously like when he starts running his whole thing we sort of glossed over it but his initial speech is basically flirting Right, he's like, I'm doing this for you, ladies. Yeah, so it's kind of like, I'll show up if you want me to, but I'm not going to really take it seriously. I hesitate to say Saved by the Bell handled this maybe a little bit better. Yeah, it's not it's not totally clear like what the lesson is to be learned on that side of it. No, but it was fun to watch baby Marissa Tomei long before her biological clock is ticking yes. like this. Yes, she's not as much from Brooklyn in this no, as she she's is not. <laughs> in My Cousin Vinny. She talks more normally. But uh, yeah, Dwayne gets up and does give that final speech where he reprimands everybody for, he says, I expected whistles, but barking? You're barking at me like dogs? You know, he's yelling at all the guys for the way they've been treating him, which again, I say doesn't totally add up because they're making fun of him for being a boy in a beauty contest, not because they they think he's a, a woman. He says people shouldn't be inspected and graded like a piece of meat. So again, you've got just pretty much verbatim the sort of standard, like you're saying, sort of like feminism 1.0 objection to, to beauty yeah. contests. And then we go back to the Whitley story for the end where she and Denise have a heart to heart and Denise says, you could spend the rest of your life trying to impress your mother, but it sounds like 
like the rest of your life is what it's going to take, you know? And so that's enough to get Jasmine guy to call her mom. And well, I guess this is how it goes. She calls the mom. We hear this whole one-sided conversation where she says, I didn't win the contest and I don't care. You got to love me for who I am, whatever. And then it's revealed she was holding her finger down on the button there's not enough time to explain to the younger people how, how that all works. But it used to be that there's, you know, you there were two different things you had to have uh, in order to make a phone call. But she so she was just practicing. out on the receiver thing. Yeah. yeah. And so it ends with just like straight up like silent roll credits as we're well, like... Well, she lifts her finger and dials. Right. And so it's like, and I And says, guess. hello, mom. Right. And then... Yeah. So it's like left to our imagination how the, you know, how the conversation mother. really played out. Yeah. But so, I don't know. Again, this one was a little bit of an outlier to me because... We're dealing with, this is essentially the primaries of the beauty contest, right? This <laughs> yeah. is like the caucus. And the so caucus. <laughs> we we didn't get a lot of those tropes of this is how you walk. This is how you wear a dress. This is what you say when they ask you about world peace. You know, we didn't right. get a lot of those fun getting ready for the beauty contest. We did get the referendum on our beauty contests. Okay. Right. All right, so we'll see how this continues moving into Malcolm in the Middle. Season 6, episode 22, Mrs. Tri-County. Yeah, so this is another one that's on the more recent side. When did this start? Early 2000s? Yeah, I think it was around 2006. Oh, actually 2000. It started in the year 2000. All right, so I was not super into this. Who does this theme song? Bare Naked Ladies? Mm, they might be giants. They might be giants. All right. Watching it now, I have to say, this theme song may be like 50% of the reason why I didn't get into this show. Apart from the That's fact that- That's so funny. It gets, it's such an earworm. Like I get it stuck in my head just randomly. You're not the boss of me now. Yeah, I don't like it. I just, I don't like the song. I don't like the guy's voice. I like the Big Bang Theory theme song i think that one is that's bare naked ladies fun. not they might be giants okay that's funny because <laughs> in the abstract i have a lot more affection for they might be giants as a band than bare naked ladies but yeah in terms of these early 2000s tv theme songs there's something about this you're not the boss of me now thing that always just kind of got under my skin. I found it annoying. I didn't like it. And of course, all the usual stuff we always say, this came out when we were in college. We were just not interested in watching a family sitcom at this right. time. Now, look, the show is highly regarded. There were plenty of Emmys. The show won a Peabody for writing. I mean, it's really it's a really well done show. You've got some amazing actors. Jane Kaczmarek plays the mom. Brian Cranston plays the dad. And then, you know, the kids are the kids and they're and they're a lot of fun in different ways. The premise of the show is that Malcolm, who is the middle uh, kind of of the boys that are still left at home. So there's four sons and then later there's a fifth son. But so he there's three sons when the show starts that are kind of living at home. And then the older boy, Francis, is away at a military school because he was like the worst delinquent of them all. Um, but so Malcolm is a genius. He's got like a 160 something IQ and he's just trying to like survive in this family of you know ridiculous dysfunction when he is this you know has this great IQ but what kind of quickly happens is that it turns out he's just as much of an asshole 
people as his brothers. And so they're kind of always playing pranks and doing mean things, mean spirited things to their mom. And their dad is just sort of harried and trying to like keep them from doing that. Um, but also is kind of like Phil Dunphy from Modern Family, a little bit of like a dummy kind of a thing. All right. So it's sort of the opposite of what I originally thought when we were watching this i saw oh there's a little baby here the the little boy looks a lot like pubert from adam's family <laughs> values i think but so i was like oh this show doesn't match its name anymore malcolm isn't in the middle he's the second of four well but what you're but telling he's me not. he's the middle of five at this point right. but that didn't happen until season four right so i thought this started out as him being numerically in the middle and then they got off track but it's it sounds like actually it was a misnomer from the start and now it's correct that well, he is yeah. in the middle. Well, so, but then not because the very last episode, um, the mom reveals that she's pregnant with a sixth child. So right. there you go. So no, he is in the middle of the three boys that live at home. Okay. So this is very much one of those early 2000s sort of single camera shows no that- laugh track this was the one that like set that up i mean obviously we've talked about parker lewis and some of the other ones that came before but this is the one that when you know scrubs started doing it yeah. and some of these other ones started doing it they would say we're trying to do a single camera like malcolm in the middle yeah and i think they're actually pulling from the sense of humor of the simpsons and shows like that and the sort of uh filmmaking technology is there for them to now do a live action version of that where we can cram a lot more comedy and ideas into a shorter time. And to me, the biggest time capsule thing of all are those sound effects. The Every time you go from one scene to the next, you have just like eight frames of horizontal nonsense to make it seem (laughs) like the camera is shooting from one location to the next. And this little sound effect that makes it seem like you're traveling really fast through through space. Meanwhile, is basically what it's doing (laughs) and that was definitely part of the dna of 30 rock uh that was that was just something that these shows loved to do at that time and so it's almost refreshing when we get to parks and rec a little bit later and you see everything start to settle down a little bit in the later (laughs) 2000s and we don't need to be literally sprinting from one scene to the next with these weird sound effects all the time yeah so this episode the setup is once again the brothers reese Malcolm and Dewey are being naughty and they are writing all of these things about their mom in this application for Mrs. Tri-County and they're laughing their heads off because she is kind of this loud, mean, you know, always screaming at them, trying to, they're basically juvenile delinquents and she's just always trying to like trick them into being better people. Um, She's got this kind of like harried mom of boys sort of thing going on throughout the series and they are you know they're little assholes and so they are actively laughing at her while writing that you know she's always there for me ha 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 she's the worst mom ever kind of a thing and so they submit her for this beauty pageant for this mrs tri-county pageant with all of these things that they think are hilarious lies and she gets selected yeah and so then the next scene is she and hal played by Brian Cranston are sitting at the kitchen table opening mail and she realizes that the boys have submitted her for this 
pageant and she's so touched. She's like, you know, they're so horrible, but then they go and do something sweet like this and I can't believe it. And you see Brian Cranston's face just like, because he knows. He knew it was a joke. He's like those little assholes. So then he goes into the their well, room and is like, you guys better get it together and support your mother in this because she thinks this is legitimate and you're horrible people. And they were like, okay, rally the troops. We gotta, we gotta help mom win. We gotta be nice. Yeah, I got a definite Carl Winslow vibe off of Brian Cranston and that breakfast scene when he realizes that the mom doesn't get it, that it's essentially a sarcastic nomination. And so he's trying to, you know, be happy for her at the same time as he's processing what's really going on here and how is he going to fix it. And he does that big grin and smile. And yeah, hang on, what does he say? He goes, great, let's do do it and yeah. he's got that big smile and yeah it's that same kind of energy as when Carl Winslow gives you that toothy grin when he's grinning and bearing it yep. and then yeah he goes and chews out the boys and is like you need to make sure that she wins for real or at least make this as unhumiliating as possible because you set her up for this and we're not going to let her fail because she is a, an amazing woman and we love her you guys are jerks and so then he turns himself into this like amazing pageant coach who's like we only have three and a half hours to rehearse this talent and if you just lean into it if you lean into it people will think it's a talent yeah he is very much taking on the role of the Annie Potts the sort of like I'm gonna be the supportive person who goes whole hog and is just like yeah, you know. well and even the Suzanne Sugarbaker because he like learns all about what you have to do to be in the pageant he coaches her on her speech he coaches her on her talent he's coaching her on like how to wear her hair and yeah. everything to do well, he's eventually going to get the other the little boy to like compose music for her and that's going to be a whole thing right. that he's like, well that's dewey's thing so dewey the youngest well not the youngest son anymore because they've got the new one but the the original youngest son he's a musical prodigy yeah brian cranston is coaching her on the key phrases there's a point where she says oh yeah i know talk about world peace and he goes no you don't talk about we world peace part. anymore yeah he goes you don't want to seem like a bunch of liberal nut jobs you know so yeah this is just sort of going i guess this is more like the designing women thing in the sense that like this all takes place at this big sort of county center right. type place there's a little bit of a b-plot where malcolm is getting blackmailed by one of the judges into passing notes back and yeah, forth he's it's one a of his teacher. teacher yeah he's a teacher at the school and so he's also a judge in this pageant and he's like a dick kind of a teacher and so malcolm is like you know having to do his bidding so that he'll vote for his mom and not tank her just because he doesn't like malcolm so he's having to run around do that and really the only reason this guy's in it is, is, is as a judge is because he wants to try and hook up with the the women that are in it and malcolm's like you know they're married right and the guy's like yeah that's how come i have to be discreet yeah duh so that's really the extent of Malcolm's role in this. This is not really a Malcolm-heavy episode. It's no, going to be more about and the as the series goes on, this season, we're in season six, almost the end, and then season seven, both focus much more heavily on Hal and um, uh, Jane Kaczmarek's character. I can't yeah, remember her name Yeah, the kids right now. all seem way too old for this. You know, yeah. I didn't watch this show, but I was familiar with secret agent Cody Banks uh, because <laughs> that of was this earlier. kid that I used to tutor. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so I figured, oh, well, obviously he was making that movie, so that was after his show had become a hit, and it was, but this is like several years after that. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. just everybody seems too old. So yeah, it's focusing more on the mom, and it's going to turn into kind of a Mean Girls situation. Right, and we get this woman who plays this character in everything. She is in Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. She's the mean girl from their high school who makes fun of them when they come back. And the same thing happens here. She also plays this same character in another sitcom that we've watched where she's like the mean girl who was the popular girl in high school. And then when you come back, I think it was the, uh, I think it was 30 30 Rock. 30 Rock, yeah. It was the same, it's the same woman. Definitely. Ubiquitous character actress from the early 2000s. That literally only plays the mean girl from high school in flashback episodes. Yeah. And so she has secured this coach. It's going to be this sort of recurring joke. There's this like really severe looking, you know, the way you would have like a figure skating coach. Right. She's like the harshest but best pageant coach ever. Yeah. And so she's going to be sort of following her around going like, is that your chin? Is that your stomach? You know, whenever she's just like doing anything. And so the way that Jane Kaczmarek's character Lois knows all of these women in the first place is because her little sister used to be in pageants and she was the one who would like help get her dressed and help you know with all the little things and help her prepare or whatever she was basically like the gypsy rose lee to baby june her sister who was the little kid pageant girl and she was just the you know ugly older sister that was trying to help out yeah so that same sort of sub trope it's not exactly the same story as whitley from a different world but we're sort of haunted by you know the past our our childhood feelings of inferiority or you know the beauty pageant is filling that hole um, in some way but yeah it's funny how this one gives us the least contemplation over the notion of beauty pageants in general because it's kind of like because it's this mom thing it's the mrs tri-county it's it's sort of a novelty in itself and it's like there there doesn't seem to be a lot of like ogling of the swimsuits and stuff like the whole thing actually seems like a little bit more of a modern you know enlightened event well i don't know about that i think that it just it isn't it isn't kind of coming at it from that way right it this lois is kind of coming at it from this way of like oh i don't you know she does have the realization that the women are kind of mean and not liking her and they're all being really competitive and that's not the type of women she wants to hang out out with but yeah there is no like this show doesn't have any qualms about the feminism or lack thereof of a pageant thing and i don't think that it's just because it's older women i think that it's just because it's not addressing it at all but yeah this this is the first taste we get of the singing host we get the guy coming in and he's the meteorologist in their local town and he tries to make some joke about weather and no one laughs and then he's singing this song it was like so small town I was like, I know this. I know what this is. Yeah, there's a point where it's in the song. He says, mom is just an upside down wow. And they have this sign that turns over that turns upside down.
one that would be clever, except it has an exclamation point. And I was wondering, like, <laughs> that makes it harder. If it was just wow, it would turn upside down to be mom. But as it is, it starts out as I mom, and it turns into wow. There you go. Maybe it's Miss Indiana mom or something. Isn't that where they are? <laughs> yeah. But so you you see the the pageant playing out. The host pulls a seacrest at some point. He has five of them come forward, and he yes. goes, "You five are not the ones going you haven't on to the finals." Made it. Yeah. So there's all of that kind of stuff, and then we get this trick that they do. Oh to yeah. The mom. Well, but before that, we get the great speech where um, the oh, reason right, right. the reason Lois makes it to this final round is because in the interview round, she's asked, you know, uh, how has being a mom made you a better woman or something like that? And she's like, it hasn't. That question's ridiculous. There's no way. And she does the thing that you were talking about before. She kind of rejects the premise of the question, but then through her answer describes how being a mom is so hard and also beautiful and how like she is a better human being or something because of her foray into motherhood because motherhood's so hard. Yeah. She says something like it's, it's a beautiful curse or something. She has, it's like some wonderful curse is her line. And it gets this little round of applause. It's like, Oh, you answered that question perfectly. And so she gets up and the lady you were talking about, the sort of front runner lady comes in. And she wants to try to steal her thunder and do the same kind of thing. And so they ask her some innocuous question and she goes like, what kind of idiotic question is that? Thinking like they like it, right? Right. They like it it when you do that. (laughs) And so that's how she crashes and burns and doesn't make it to the final round. So then, like you say, we have that Seacrest moment where the five in the front are actually the ones that are eliminated. And so then they're going to do the glamour walk part of the pageant. Right. Which I did not understand what this was. I mean, I could figure it out from context, but I did not know about this. It's like the evening gown portion. Um, so they are going to do the glamour walk and this woman who is friends with the other like mean lady who got kicked out, she um, says to Lois, hey, we're, we were all going to wear tiaras during this part and you weren't, so we were going to kind of make you look bad, but here, why don't you wear this tiara? And so then she's like, oh, thank you so much, thinking that she's finally like come around and the women like her now and whatever. And then as they're all going on stage, one by one, she goes on first and then one by one, they each take off their tiaras. So she walks out as the only one in a tiara and everyone is just aghast because we usually allow the judges to give the crown And she's like, I didn't. uh," And she turns around and all the other women are not wearing them. And she realizes she's been tricked. And so she goes back to her little dressing area and she's like, that's it. She changes into her regular clothes and is going to leave. You hear the host off camera going, ladies and gentlemen, please remain calm. There's no need to panic because it's like, yeah, this faux pas of her wearing the tiara in the glamour walk or whatever it is has like gotten just the whole place into this uproar. So yeah, it's very funny. And Brian Cranston runs back and, you know, kind of tracks her down. Oh, it's okay. And so she confronts him and she's like, yeah, I hate 
how these ladies have been treating me, but I also hate how you've been treating me. Right, because he's trying to be so supportive that he's gone overboard. And now he's like, he's to the point where like, you can do this. I know you can do this. And here are the rules. And you said you wanted to do this. So we're going to do this. And he's like, just gone too far. There's a point, yeah, where back at home, he's demonstrating to the kid that's doing the music. He's going, it's got to be Bob. Ah, be be da, be be da, be be do. You know, like he's doing Dewey's like, I don't think thing. it's ever going to be yeah. like that, Dad. <laughs> and then he says to the mom, he goes, and we still have no idea where we're going with the hair. You know, <laughs> so it is that great. I mean, Brian Cranston is such a great actor. You know, if it's all worth it, if we owe it to this show to give us him for for Breaking Bad, and yeah, him challenging that into silliness is very funny. Yeah, and so she says, she's like, you know, I've also never felt worse from you like I feel like you are judging me and you're putting me down and I'm not good enough for you and I've never felt that way and he just like immediately kind of shakes out of his coach mode and is like you're right I'm really sorry and by the way it's not that these women are operating in another league from you it's that they're, they wouldn't have played that trick on you unless they were jealous of you and they're worried that you're going to win so they're trying to sabotage you They're not in your league, to which she kind of realizes that that that's true. And then she hears them calling for her for her talent portion. And so we've gotten a couple teases about her talent not really being a talent. And we're not sure. And, you know, Brian Cranston's like, you got to commit to it if people are going to think it's a talent. So we don't know what it is. And she's had a whole little part before where she's like, I don't have any talents. And so we've been waiting for this reveal. And she goes out. She's in like full mom clothes. She's not in any type of like cute pageanty outfit. She's in a green polka dot blouse that's untucked and little like capri green lime green pants which is like so 2005 mom. Yeah. I mean like I used to wear this outfit to work. You know what I mean? Like this is so quintessential like mom look in the early 2000s and so she goes out there and Dewey's playing and she whistles this like gorgeous melody yeah I it was actually sort of like I I wondered how they did it I'm like is this possible for a human being to create this noise that she then like whistle syncs to yes yeah this is this man named Steve Herbst who's known as the whistler okay and this is like (laughs) what he's known for um and this like beautiful whistling yeah so she does that now does she win the contest do they even show us they don't show us i think she leaves yeah because my notes kind of end with this you know like it's just supposed to be another case of she sort of reclaimed her dignity right and just kind of as long as we have a good time we're all winners right well and she gets this like crazy standing ovation for her talent and so the understanding is she like knocked it out of the park in the interview round she made the faux pas of wearing the tiara in the glamour round she knocks it out of the park in the talent round so maybe she wins maybe she doesn't but if we were the uh, the audience at home were to judge we'd say she's a winner yeah again we don't get a ton of the sort of exploration of the sexual politics and everything in this one but we get a lot of those fun subtropes leading up to the contest all of the practicing and everything and the coaching gone crazy and all that and uh yeah you know i don't know i feel like in some ways 
this is sort of the most straightforward version of it, you know, because we're right. not calling into question the validity of the whole notion of the beauty pageant. We're just sort of getting a fun little like, oh, this is what it's this is what it's like to be in one of those and how everyone's kind of ganging up on you. Yeah. And that the girls are mean, which, again, is a comment in and of itself, right? Yeah. That the women, the reason beauty pageants are bad isn't because of the way that people are being ogled. It's because it's pitting women against each other like that's what this one's kind of saying yeah all right moving on to parks and rec season two episode three beauty pageant yeah so we talked about parks and recreation back in our camping episode this is a good one this is a show we like i think we've both watched this through you know respectively on our own over the years this is mike Schur, right one of the guys from the office uh yeah. kind of broke off and created this show it's got that same vibe of the sort of faux documentary but it doesn't take place in the same world of course because Rashida Jones is different characters yes, in the office. Rashida Jones or, plays Anne here. Yeah but so this one is going to be all about uh, sort of going back to that idea you're talking about of the local pageant circuit and that sort of this this is a you know represents something for the, the local government people to sort of get involved in a little bit we're gonna have multiple characters being on the judging panel for this so right there is a sort of different angle on this thing so we've got um Leslie Nope, Amy Poehler's character, is all excited. She comes in and announces to the office that she is going to be a judge. And um, while that would normally seem out of character for her, she's excited because she's going to ensure that the judging is about merit and it is about, you know, who should truly represent Pawnee as Miss Pawnee, the right woman needs to win and that's why she's so excited to be a judge so she's in this uh, mindset of like i'm gonna make this thing that might not necessarily be traditionally feminist feminist from the inside out that's why i want to be a judge and then immediately aziz ansari's character is like cool i want to figure out how i can get on that judging panel because ladies and he kind of worms his way into being able to be on the judging panel as well and then you have um one of the characters who's a former miss pond and then a guy who's been a judge on the panel for forever. Um, and then there's like one other random guy who owns a sub shop in town. So that's the cast of judges. And this is one of the only episodes, I think the only episode we don't have Ron. Oh, wow. I didn't even notice that. But yeah, that's a bummer. No Nick Offerman here. So this is one that kind of got me thinking more than than maybe I ever have of the idea that being one of these pageant winners is like an office that you hold that like it's not just the pageant itself. It's like Miss America or Miss New York or whatever. These are like public figures, yes. you know, and it sort of goes back to that question I mentioned before of like. Leslie is is trying to figure out, like, is there something at the core of this that is good, that has some substance to it that I can try to restore and sort of peel away the sexist nonsense from? Yes. And Miss Pawnee, like a lot of the more um, updated pageants now, no longer has a swimsuit portion. Tom Haverford was uh, arguing to get that reinstated. He was very unhappy that that had been taken off of the table. So, yes. Yeah, 
So then April hears that uh, the winner gets $600. So she decides she's going to enter because she's like, I want $600. I can pretend to be an idiot. She's like, beauty pageants are for idiots. I can pretend to be an idiot for $600. Yeah. April is Aubrey Plaza, of course. This was, yeah, one of her big things. She's great. And so, yeah, this all kind of gets underway. And in the style of one of these shows... It's it's we sort of have like a bunch of little stories kind of happening at once, right? Like a lot of just sort of funny little gags and things. We've got Louis C.K. as the police officer or security guy or whatever. He's not really that essential to the beauty pageant element. Of no, this. he comes in in the next uh, the next episode of the show is him and Leslie's first date. Right. We're working up to that. You know, he's he's met her once or twice before. He likes her. He tells us in a talking head segment he wants to to ask her out and he does. And uh, she says, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll go out with you. Let's let's figure it out. And then he sees her photo of Madeline Albright. And it's clear that he doesn't know who she is. He thinks yeah, he's that like, she's... oh, is that your grandmother? And then Leslie makes a joke like, oh, ha ha. Yeah, my grandmother. And he's like, and she's like, that's Madeline Albright, the first woman secretary of state. And she and he's like, oh, so your grandmother was the first woman. And she's like, Right. No. So I wanted to ask you, would this be a deal breaker for you if somebody saw a picture of Madeleine Albright and made it clear that they didn't know who that was? To what extent would that like change your willingness to go out with them? I mean, I don't think just a picture, right? But what it represents is a little bit more, right? And what it represents is Leslie's getting the ick because this guy isn't as smart as she is. But what she's sort of kind of comes around to is that it's not that he's not as smart as me. It's that he just doesn't have the same interests in me. And then later on, he tries to show that he will, you know, is willing to be interested in these female politicians in the way that she's interested in them. So by the end of the episode, she does say yes and makes a date with him. The other thing that he does right is he comes to the beauty pageant and the girl that's like the dumb hot one that Leslie doesn't want to win, she kind of like bumps into him and the the security guard played by Louis C.K. just like pays her no mind, just like ignores right. this super hot girl that everybody is falling all over and Leslie is very frustrated by because she's not intelligent. And so um, he doesn't pay her any mind. And then that like undoes the ick that Leslie had in the first place. Yeah, he's very nice. But I think uh, the way he he plays him, he does kind of seem like he's not as bright as, sure. as Leslie. Which but is why that the that relationship as we know from the series doesn't end up lasting yeah but so yeah let's talk about trish right this is all going to be about this this beauty pageant gets underway and and leslie finds one of these girls that she likes you know she seems smart she's pulling for him she seems almost like not quite as extreme but almost like a young rachel dratch or uh, something. i say she's a she's like a young leslie nope she's yeah. super into you know piano and she's super into volunteering and she does this and that and she's studying this at the university and like and she's this tiny little petite blonde lady just like leslie nope so she sees a lot of herself and her and is like this is the only one of all the people here who 
is going to college, that's the one she is now campaigning for. Right. But the one that commands the attention of everybody else is Trish. They have them all up on stage. They come out and give their little introductory remarks. And Trish goes, I'm Trish. I'm 22 years old. I've been on YouTube. I love wearing bikinis on the beach with everyone there. You know, so she, right. she goes like, hey, everybody, give it up and have a good time or something like she just kind of gets everybody going like she's one of those party starters at a bar yeah. mitzvah or something and it just works on everybody yes and so except you know, for leslie who's yeah. not having any of it she was like i don't mean to be that woman but trish will win over my dead body yeah and leslie has her own custom scorecard that aziz shows us at one point where it's like this big spreadsheet where she has all of these columns for the different categories one of them is naomi wolf factor that's right, right. i don't remember who naomi wolf is she's a third wave feminist okay i, I, I had a book in like the uh, 70s i don't even remember when and aziz has just taken to referring to trish as the hot one and everybody knows who he's talking about there's this cringy moment where aziz is guessing all the girls bra sizes and right they're all like tittering about that no pun intended well so just to kind of circle back on the things that we're seeing in this episode that have aged like uh milk you've got louis ck as the love interest and then like you were talking about naomi wolf like i said feminist icon is now an anti-vaxxer. So we've got all sorts of people that have kind of come and gone since this episode uh, aired. So NBC had a website called like misspawnee.com and you could go to it and you could download Leslie's spreadsheet, her like special judging sheet, and you could judge the pageant along with the episode. That was like an interactive thing they were doing when this episode aired, which is ridiculous the other thing that happens that i was going to say is that it kind of devolves into like a 12 angry men situation yes. where they're the judges go back and tom is like well this one's open and shut everybody for trish and everybody raises their hand and leslie's like wait 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 yes so she's the lone holdout and that's when she says the thing about like over my dead body so you know she starts to convince i think one or two people and then eventually it's three to two for trish and then it's just been too long and it, you know they give up so trish wins yeah before before they broke for the deliberation we got that great speech where leslie asks her so and so said that america was a great experiment oh you know, right this how is do you like think, the... yeah how do you think we can improve on america as an experiment and it starts with Trish is just sort of rambling and answering the question kind of inadequately and stupidly. And then it sort of mutates into like xenophobia, you right. know, where she starts going like... Immigrants really, are having too many children. Yeah, if something. it were up to me, I would say this country is for us, not them. That's you know? right. And, and then everybody cheers. Yeah. But it was kind of like one of those moments from... Remember that girl who went viral in like Miss Teen USA that she like had like you know word diarrhea when she was asked a question and she was just like and i think you know and ended yeah, up exactly. going on and on and on i think that's what this i think her name was like upton or something like that and so so leslie does find herself very much in a 12 angry men situation and yeah like you said it looks like she's gonna make some headway and they just do this sort of funny cut where i forget what the final thing is leading up to it but then it's just like cut to 
The pageant is over. Trish has won. The judge says, it's the hot one. You know, yep. so it's like even the judge is referring to her like that. And then Leslie takes the mic and she says, this isn't the first time that a Susan has lost to a Trish and it won't be the last. And she sort of gives a little speech, you know, basically saying like, I don't know, it's it's still okay. And everybody ignores her. No yeah. one's paying any attention. Leslie wants to make it like a dignified concession speech where she'll right. go like, Trish, I didn't vote for you but I will now respect you as the Miss Pawnee authority or whatever. And then the camera like pans over to, yeah, it's like the, the current winner and the, the former Miss Pawnee or whatever are all just knocking back shocks and yelling. Being woo girls. Yeah. Yeah. So this one, it does get to the sexism stuff in terms of like the Aziz cringy behavior and just the way that all of the jurors are so swept by Trish yeah, I don't know. It's a different, it's just a different take on it. Like, it's almost, are we meant to go like, is Leslie the one who's sort of like making a fool's errand of this whole thing by trying to make the pageant something that it's not? Like, this is another yeah. one that it's hard to parse out. No, I, and I think you're right. I think the the way that it kind of plays out is like, the, it's the last bastion of this level of sexism that you're just you're not going to be able to fix it like you cannot get into a beauty pageant as a judge and try to make the change that you want to see in this space like it's not going to happen that way there's just there's no interest within this organization or outside of you know to actually make that change and there's there's other changes that can be made so i think that was kind of the point that it was making that it was like you can try all you want this isn't the space for you hun <laughs> yeah and in a sense that's what so much of parks and rec is is like whatever thing they're dealing with some aspect of city government or something about life, you know, is like, yeah, isn't this kind of a farce and isn't all the bureaucracy crazy or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, that sort of futility, I guess that's what makes the attitude of this show so, you know, sort of appealing is that you've got Leslie being so positive and sort of always making it feel optimistic, even as you're sort of seeing how much of a shit show like the world around her is. Yeah. So I don't know, looking back over these, like I said at the beginning, you know, we've got like it, it brings up this very sort of controversial topic. I think all but of then these doesn't really deal with it. <laughs> I think they, I think it does deal with it. I think they don't offer conclusions. Right. I think all of these shows do, you know, again, with the possible exception of Malcolm, they all do ponder the notion of these beauty contests and like, aren't they kind of weird? Is it a little bit sexist? Should we maybe not have them anymore? And but then, it's only pondering the question. It's not offering solutions. Yes, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily bad. No. Uh, but yeah, it does. Uh, I don't know. It does give us a lot to chew on. What do we think in terms of enjoyment, uh, in terms of, you know, which... I mean, Designing Women goes down as, a, as one of my favorite episodes of TV, period. This monologue alone, iconic, classic. So that one is just fun to watch whether or not you know you're headed in that direction. Like the first time I went back and rewatched when we were doing it for our TGIF, I didn't realize until we were in the room 
that that was the scene and I was about to watch the monologue happen. And I was like, oh my God, it's now, this is, it's here, it's happening. So still, I knew it was coming this time and still loved every bit of it. And they were able, they actually had a debate, right? Whereas all the, none of the other shows kind of argued both sides and really had the, had the argument. All the other shows were like, this is stupid or, Woo, ladies and boobies, right? Like this was four women, two taking one side, two taking the other side, having a conversation. So I will say Designing Women was my favorite out of all of the episodes. Yeah, that was pretty strong for exactly that reason. And like we said, because it's episode two, we're getting pure Designing Women. This is what they imagined the show to be. You know, this is it. And I think for me, I really liked... Malcolm in the middle because of the Cranston stuff, you know, like they're all good for sure. The, the mom is fun, but in a sense, he was the one that really got the most fun stuff to do. And so, yeah, seeing him go crazy and get into that over the top stuff, you know, seeing him yell about, you know, they haven't figured out what to do with the hair and all that stuff. I think that maybe combined with the fact that it didn't even try to deal with the sexism angle and was just kind of like, yeah, what if your mom entered a beauty pageant and had to deal with a bunch of mean ladies? Uh, In a lot of ways, I think that kind of made that one the MVP for me. Yeah. Well, and then you're right, because they weren't trying to like make it a political statement or have anything to deal. They don't have the cast for that. It's just a bunch of boys, right? (laughs) Like Lois is the only woman in that in that show that has any main role so i think they didn't have the the cast to have those conversations so they just did something different with it yeah and then by the time you get to parks and rec it's like sure we're gonna point out how dumb beauty pageants can be but at this point we're kind of preaching to the choir like everybody knows that there are potentially problematic things about this so we're just gonna kind of laugh at it right and that there's some people that are getting involved for certain reasons and there's some people that are getting involved exactly. for other reasons and they're just kind of laying that bare yeah all right so much for the beauty pageants what are we talking about next week next wiggity wiggity week we have an amazing lineup we are watching 227 season 5 episode 7 video activity guest star bobby brown the fresh prince of bel-air season 2 episode 11 the butler did it guest star belle biv devoe Drexel's Class, Season 1, Episode 17, Cruisin', Guest Star, Digital Underground, and A Different World, Season 6, Episode 11, Original Teacher, with guest stars, Criss Cross. That's right, next week, it's early 90s hip-hop groups. Yep, all guest appearances from early 90s hip-hop artists, we're gonna be getting... Funky? I don't know. Getting getting deaf? Uh, yeah, yeah, something like that. We gonna get down. All right. Uh, that's next week. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to the sitcom study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The sitcom study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. (laughs) 